Hi there, this is Dan Delta Collins. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and also youtube.com slash wanderingdms. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan, and today we have uh, as a very special guest our friend James Malajewski, who is the author of the Grognardia blog, the excellent traveling volume zine, and he's going to be here today to talk about his seven-year and counting campaign in the Empire of the Petal Throne world. Uh, James, thank you so much for joining us today. It's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Cool, cool. You, of, of course, are one of the most prolific um, uh, writers in the old old school scene, and your Grognardia blog is still uh, putting still putting uh, most of us to shame, uh, trying to keep our writing output up. Um, and, and you're one of the world experts, I think, at this point on uh, playing in the Empire of the Petal Throne. Maybe for, I mean, you know, our viewers know what that is, but maybe if there's some new viewers today, maybe maybe tell us a little bit about what that campaign world is. Sure. Um, so Empire of the Petal Throne is um, the second role-playing game that TSR Hobbies produced in 1975. Uh, the rules themselves are more or less a... Um, uh, Original Dungeons and Dragons with some variations added to them. Um, you know, Pre Greyhawk original D and D, so there's no thieves, none of that, uh, uh, and the spell system's a little bit different. But the primary difference between Dungeons and Dragons original D and D is that it has its own unique setting, uh, Tecmo, which is not based on uh, European fantasy and history, but rather instead is an original creation of a uh, professor from Minnesota. Well, rather he taught at Minnesota, uh, University of Minnesota, um, uh, M.A.R. Barker. Uh, and the setting is a kind of a, a science fantasy setting. It's set on a planet, Tecmel, which is far away from Earth, tens of thousands of years in the future, uh, where technology is so advanced that it's like magic. And then um, humans go to this world. There's a cataclysm that occurs that uh, throws everything back uh, to... Um, a more primitive state, and the people there, the, the human colonists there, along with the other alien beings that came with them, they sort of, um, they've forgotten what they once had. They don't understand the technology anymore, and it appears to them as magic. Uh, so that's sort of a rough outline of what the setting is actually like. So the, 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 the campaign begins uh, when, you, when you play the game uh, at the many, many thousands of years after this collapse has happened, this fall. And so at that point, uh, on the surface, it appears to be purely fantastical. But in, in reality, there's a sort of science fiction underlay to it. It's, as we talked about this last time I was here, actually, a bit, uh, about it's, it's a secret science fiction setting. Uh, and that's roughly what, what makes Tecmel distinctive from, say, Dungeons & Dragons. I mean, D&D, as you know, and I'm sure you've talked about this many times, has lots of science fictional elements to it. But this one, the Tecamel is very explicitly uh, based on those kinds of golden age sort of uh, science fiction, uh, this sort of very high tech uh, Clark's Law sort of uh, science fiction. And that's, that's one of the things that makes it very, very unique 
Is, is there something else that you, you think people would be interested in knowing about? Uh, I feel like that's a pretty good preview. If somebody didn't not know what EPT was, yeah. I think that's a pretty good, pretty good um, overview. And, and it's interesting how we've, you know, we have had um, conversations with guests in the last year a number of times. I love this phrase, secret science fiction, actually, is very useful of tends to, you know, roll around in the, the, um, the undergrowth down the basement of like a lot of uh, campaign worlds and a lot of like D&D ideas. So it's kind of interesting to think about how early, right, how early it was made really uh, prominent in Tecamel. Um, so it's uh, really interesting to think back to that. Um, so the, the main thing we want to talk about today is you've been running a specific campaign that you call House of Worms. And from what you told me, uh, March, I guess, was the seventh anniversary of that. So yes. some of us, so frankly, I'm really jealous. Okay. So I hear, and, you know, and we might, maybe there's going to be some super ultra, you know, old school guy that's going to come on and go, well, I've had my campaign running for 10 or 20 or 30 years or something like that. And I, you know, am very envious of those kinds of ongoing campaigns. I hear about it. I w wish that I had managed to do that. I've man never managed to do that. So so how does how do you do that? How do you keep a campaign running for seven years and going? That's um, a lot of luck, uh, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> but there 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 are a lot there are many things I could talk about. Um, so yeah, the campaign began in March of 2015. Um, this was back in the days when Google Plus was still a thing, if we can remember those those days. Uh, and I had run two TechML campaigns prior to this. Uh, one back in the late 90s. One mid 2000s uh first decade of the century um and i wanted to do it again um and i felt that i had a better understanding of the setting and better uh hooks for bringing in new players uh, people who were unfamiliar with the setting and the game and part of the throne so i just put out a a call onto google plus um and i got a bunch of players there were seven players who initially expressed interest in uh, of those, only six ever actually made it to the point where they played. One of the players, uh, after he said he wanted in, he, he couldn't because of schedule. Uh, and of those six, um, there was only one person with whom I had played uh, extensively prior to that. Um, several of them were complete strangers to me. I never knew them at all, um, except you know online in a, in a kind of a vague way. You, you, I'm sure you know what that's like. Um, and that you know that was the beginning that was the beginning of the campaign i had no expectation at the time that it was going to last as long as it did i as a general rule and maybe this is important um when i start something new i do it with the expectation that it's going to go on for years i don't hmm. plan things on the basis of I, I don't do mini campaigns or you know uh extended arcs or one shots or things like that i generally always assume this is it. I'll be playing this until I die. Now, it never really happens, but this is the closest I've come to that in a very, in a very long time. But I, that's the assumption. So that's that's the um, the mindset I go in. So maybe that's part of it, right? I sort of can, think about that. All right, can I can I interrupt and, and ask, uh, are all six of those players still playing today? Um, uh, four of them are still playing. Uh, four of them are mm -hmm. still playing. Um, Two of them dropped out around the same time due to just real life um, circumstances that prevented their continuing to play. But 
prior to their leaving, a, another person joined, and he's still with it. So four have been around for seven years, five have been around for six, and then there are currently seven players in the campaign. The other two have been around for two or three years, I think. I, I, I sort of lose track. And then I've had other people who have uh, popped in or out for short mm -hmm. periods of time because they knew I was running it, and they said, hey, I've never played Empire Throne. I want to know more about Tecumel. Would you mind if I sat in? And it's usually pretty easily done. I the campaign is set up in such a way that it's very easy for players to sort of join awesome. for short periods of time. That's, um, that's very cool. That's um, I know the, the one time I tried to run a long running campaign. I think I maybe made it to two or three years, um, but then continued to try and use the world that we had kind of organically grown from the output of that to like run more campaigns in. But what it's hard to call that still the same campaign. Like the only combining thread the only returning player really is me um but i'm curious so so having had this experience which i which i've I, i've not had um are there any surviving characters did any of is there any seven-year-old character in this game um actually um yeah there are uh the four characters that survives in the beginning are still around um there's a couple reasons for that. One of them yeah. is I, I'm. I, I hope this doesn't destroy like my old school cred here. But I'm not. Um, I'm not a killer referee. Like I don't. I don't do that sort of thing for the most part. Uh, my players are also pretty smart uh, for the most part. Uh, yeah. But honestly, I think the real the the main issue is that um, the campaign is very um, social and exploratory, uh, more so than combat oriented. Uh, there are extended sections where they spent a great deal of time involved in fighting and that sort of thing, but they spend it's, and I don't want to frighten people away because uh, one of the knocks against Tecumel that is often said is that it's a, it's a anthropology game. It's a, it's an exercise in fantasy anthropology, uh, or, or I, I've heard people use the term culture game. Um, okay. and there's, there's something, there's some, there's something to that. There's something to that certainly. Because part of the, the enjoyment of it, and I think one of the reasons why it's lasted as long as it has, one of many, is that it's about this exploration of these fantastical cultures. And the players over time start to become uh, acclimated to these, these imaginary cultures, and they start to think like the people in that setting. Uh, that was probably one of my proudest moments early on when the characters, this happened probably about a year into the game, maybe a little longer, hmm. where through a magical uh, mishap, uh, they wound up transported to a far off place. They didn't know where it was. And eventually they figured out where they were and how far away they were from home. And they began judging the other uh, place, this other society and culture through the lens of their home, their character, society and culture. Now, and, and Tecumel is a very, um, uh, how shall we say, uh, culturally chauvinist sort of place. Uh, it's, it's an ancient world, and so the people there, they tend to think, well, the way we do things is the best. It's not a modern world. It's a, it's a traditional sort of setting. And so it's like, in this place, they do this thing. We can't, that's ridiculous. Like, why would you do that? That's, that's strange. And they started, but the players themselves had, had become acclimated to the way things were done in the country, the empire of Tsoyanu, which is the, the titular empire of the Petal Throne. And they went off to this far off place where things were different. 
and they started viewing it. And that was a proud moment for me just because it meant they got it, that they'd finally been acclimatized. They'd become acculturated to this imaginary place. And that was fun. It was really enjoyable. Now, it was a, sometimes it would lead to jokes and so forth because the, the players knew what they were doing and they were aware of it. And I don't want to give the impression that we're super, super immersive in these things. I mean, no one's speaking you know, constructive languages or anything like that. But it's fun to watch them in engage with the setting through a character who himself has a different worldview. That's really interesting because I, I feel like, you know, as someone who really leans into the uh, medieval fantastic war game uh, <clears throat> end of it, um, it, 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 and you know, some uh, um, cranky old uh, gamers can go, oh, you know, young people nowadays, they're gaming, they want to be, it's all social interaction, they're going to proms and all this kind of stuff. But it, it is interesting to reflect that that angle of we're exploring really social situations um, was there right from the get-go when the first couple months of D&D being published. So that's, it's, it's an interesting option that you can play old school, but you can still be not super combat oriented actually. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, again, uh, if, if people are familiar with um, like RuneQuest, uh, the setting of Glorantha, it's like that. And that's a, it's a very old game. I mean, much like Tecamel, the setting of Glorantha predates role-playing games. And it was, it was created to explore sort of ideas and, and alternate cultures and, and mythological approaches. And so Tecamel is a similar kind of thing. But it's funny. There are no proms in Tecamel, but there are a lot of uh, weddings. <laughs> there, there, are, there are weddings in and we've had we've had a couple of occasions like that because after seven years the characters are very strongly immersed in the culture and i mean that in the sense that they have places within the world right like they're no longer just nobodies they've risen to positions of prominence and, and authority within their within the fictional setting and as a result they've formed uh, alliances of various sorts with, with NPCs and patrons and so forth and that includes marital alliances like the characters have uh, have married we've had like two big weddings that happened in the game that were really excuses for well, i shouldn't say that but partially excuses for politicking and influence peddling and uh, trading between different factions. And it, again, you would, it's the kind of thing that if I were to have said that to myself prior to that was going to be doing this, I would have thought it was the most ridiculous thing ever. It just seems absurd, right? It's just, it's sort of like playing house or something, but it's a very enjoyable thing because it arises organically out of the play. It just is the thing that occurred uh through playing and it's it's been absolutely wonderful it's really enjoyable and i think that's the other thing too that's kept the game going on is that there are so many different avenues for the players to um uh, i would say i was going to say cause trouble but that's a uh, somewhat negative way of putting it but i mean th th there's so many outlets for them to uh to engage with the setting and uh and do things and make them happen and the, the campaign is very player driven very character -driven. Uh, it's it's quite open ended. I throw things at the players constantly, and sometimes they bite. And more often, they're like, "No, I'd rather do this other thing that I'm interested in." And and if you can get that kind of engagement from the players, then you can keep the ball rolling for a long, long time. That's great. That's great. I should I should uh, give a shout out. So we currently have our uh, our image scroll growing, and uh, those uh, from what uh, James told me earlier, those are player characters in the House of Worms campaign. 
And those pieces are all done uh, by Zhu Beiji is the artist's name. And if anybody's interested in seeing more, uh, you can go to his website at realmofzhu.blogspot.com uh, and see more of that. So th big thanks to Zhu for sharing those, uh, those portraits. That particular, pic that particular picture isn't a Tecumel one, though. Oh, okay, okay, okay. My bad. That, that okay. is, that's from another thing that I'm working on, but it's still a lovely picture, so I'm not going to. Great, 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 great. Now, I will say, uh, you know, it's funny you say that there's weddings in Tecumel because, uh, I mean, for just coincidentally, uh, 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 Paul and myself were at a wedding uh, last weekend and things happened. You, you agree with that, Paul? <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Of course things happened. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so that's interesting to reflect on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a, you know, that's a good opportunity for, for possibly high drama. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah, very, very much. So. And, and that's, that's the way things go generally in the campaign is that almost everything is an opportunity for, for scheming and, uh, and interaction and just sort of um, finding little uh, things that the players are interested in and... I, I, I got to repeat myself, but I will. It, that's that's the important. That's one of the big things that has happened is that the players have found things that interest them, and I always run with that. It's better to do that than to try to force upon them things that I'm interested in because who am I? Yeah. Um, I, ju I just w I just want to draw attention there. So there's a a little uh, bit of chat going on right now amongst the viewers mm -hmm. uh, about uh, experience points and levels. And right. uh, our our viewer and your player James Stephen Wendell is uh, in there answering <laughs> some questions. So thank you so much uh, for doing that, Stephen. Um, Let me throw up. Uh, but uh, I'm going to throw up Bill's. I'm going to throw up Bill's yeah, uh, question that yeah. started this, which which is great. Right. So so Bill Rubine, um, who always asks great questions, asked, uh, "How do you manage experience points?" And yeah, thanks to uh, our patron Stephen and your player for answering some part of that. But I kind of want to hear it from the horse's mouth. How? Particularly if it's low combat in original D and D, is that a problem with the experience not accruing fast? Or how that's do you do exactly that? that? Where I wanted to go with that question. Yes. <laughs> great minds. Great minds. Wondering DMs. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Empire of the Pale Throne being a D and D uh, derivative game, uh, the way it works is that experience points comes from a combination of uh, combat and from the recovering of treasure. It's just, it's exactly the same as, as D&D. Its main difference, though, is that it's actually harder to advance in original, in Empire of the Hell Throne than in original D&D because there's this um, mechanism where as you go up in level, the amount of experience you get is, like, after third level, the experience you get is halved. And then after, uh, is it sixth level, I think it starts, then it's quartered. And then after that, you get 10% of the experience. So... Yes. So as a result, in this campaign, after seven years of play, there's only one character who is seventh level. And that's that's the highest character level of the game. And that's and he only got to be seventh level because there was a magical book that gave him experience to gain one more level. He should be sixth. So in terms of XP that's been accumulated, it's only been been sixth is the highest. And that's a character who's existed since the beginning of the campaign. Um, wow. so I only award XP uh, from those those things um which means that as a result the advancement is slow relatively speaking. but what i have found is that absolutely no one cares be precisely because most of the action of the campaign is, not most but a lot of the action of the campaign is social uh it means that 
it doesn't like what your combat abilities are isn't really significant much of the time. Um, the other thing it's done inadvertently is that it's preserved that sweet spot of D&D where the mechanics work really well, where you're not so um, weak that you can be killed by something insignificant, but you're also not so powerful that you can never be put into any kind of danger or that your abilities are such that they could be literally world shattering. Interesting. I'm going to throw up. I'm going to throw up an addendum that uh, that Stephen just put up in the chat that I think is interesting. Uh, Stephen Wendell is saying, uh, and that character got that book as a wedding gift. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It, it, it is absolutely true. Um, the character, in fact, I think I think I sent you. Um, there are two pictures that I sent you, images that show a man and a woman, and they both represent two different married couples from the camp. Um, so one of them, the one that Stephen has referenced, uh, oh, his yeah. character, his character is from a um, yes, that's the very one right yeah. there. Nabusa is his name, uh, and he uh, he comes from a very high clan. Uh, he's not a member of the House of Worms clan. He's rather the uh, cousin of the wife of another character uh, who joined. He joined the campaign about a year into our playing. Um, he comes from a very high and impressive and important clan. So when he was married in the imperial capital, one of his wedding guests was one of the potential heirs to the Puddle Throne. And he was given this as a gift. Uh, so it was, a, it was a big deal. I mean, as it turns out, it was all part of a plot by said imperial prince to influence him to do something that he wanted. Uh, it didn't work. But that was the intention. So it's like a nice, nice bit of bait in order to try to push uh, the character uh, in a certain direction, but as I say, it's up to what the players want to do, and sometimes they don't bite. So, can I ask, um, like, how often are you handing out XP? Are there long stretches of time where there's simply none? I, I mean, I'm assuming with a, not a lot of combat that really it boils down to treasure. And my experience with D and D is that that's very spiky, right? You have lots of sessions where there's no treasure, and then suddenly we found a hoard, and everybody's very excited. Mm -hmm. and, leveling perhaps happens is that what you're you're finding james yeah <clears throat> oh we've lost your audio james the spikiness is exact i'm sorry i had <laughs> muted myself because i didn't want um Great. the spikiness is exactly correct that's exactly the way yeah. it goes there will be long stretches of time where they will gain no experience points um mostly they will gain them when they're poking around in ruins and underworlds and things of that sort which happens quite regularly so i <laughs> to sort of backtrack just slightly, even though there's a great deal of social uh, interaction, and that's a huge part of the campaign, there is also the search for, as Steven's character always says, cash and prizes. That is his motivating factor. He's probably the character who's most interested in that since the very beginning. He's an, he's an adventurer at heart. He wants to go out there and explore the ruins, fight the monsters, get the stuff. Um, and so as a result... Um, there are these times when they're spending a great deal of, um, of effort to uh, delve around in ruins and extract things. In fact, that's what's happening in the campaign right now. They're in the process of doing that. So that's when they tend to gain the, gain the XP. But there will be weeks or even months where there's no, uh, no experience points. Heck, there's weeks or months where they don't roll any dice. So, Wow. Now, okay, so that kind of dovetails into my next question. And, and again, possibly for old school players, the answer is going to be obvious. But I feel like if, if fifth edition players are watching this, 
Um, they might expect if it's, if it's a heavily social interaction campaign, they might expect a lot of social skills. Do you have specific mechanics or roles or abilities or skills to handle the social interactions or, or not? It's interesting you ask that because uh, Empire of the Pell Throne does have a, a very rudimentary skill system. Uh, compared to original D and D, so it uh, it has skills that basically are they represent uh, areas of competence, just things that you know. But there's no real, uh, for the most part, uh, there's no real rules for how you use them. It's sort of so if your character is, say, for example, an animal trainer or a hunter or something of that sort, uh, it means that it's it's a it's a way to just say okay your character likely knows the kind of things necessary to do those things. Um, there are, there's a thing in the game called an adventure role, which is a percentile role that you make that's based on a combination of uh, ability scores. Just sort of, if when in doubt and you don't know, you just make a role and you see whether you succeed or not. And I do make use of those. But almost none of those skills are socially oriented. They're, they're mostly just areas of knowledge and competence for the most part. Uh, there are a couple of skills that sort of um, touch on that a bit, but most of what happens in the game is done through the players themselves, you know, coming up with uh, what they want to do. Um, some of the players are just really good at being able to uh, navigate social environments. Others are actually good at it, but their characters aren't, and so they intend not, they're, they're not, they are not the typical spokesman in these kinds of environments when they're meeting an imperial prince they keep their mouth shut they don't want to offend whereas others are much more you know uh, comfortable with that sort of thing but there's no actual for the most part there are no skill roles it's it's all entirely done through talking fantastic fantastic so there's so it's there's no safety it's role playing with no safety net <laughs> I, I, I suppose that's a way of putting it. I mean, the thing is, and again, I want to stress this, um, it's much like the with the business with the, um, like, constructed languages. Tecumel's famous for having these, uh, these languages. I am not the kind of referee who says that, you know, if your character is in a position where he would know something, the right way to approach something, if the player doesn't, I, I'm not going to say, well, it's too bad for you. It's sort of like, I regularly will say, okay, you're a character, given his status and position, would be familiar with this and know these kinds of things, and to sort of give that to the player to uh, to use as a basis of uh, making their own decisions. Um, I, I wouldn't penalize someone because they're not themselves as uh, knowledgeable about the setting as, as I am. Um, but again, the players over seven years have become quite knowledgeable about things, and they increasingly make their plans on the basis of what they know about the setting and the way things work. That's great. That's great. You know, so you briefly touched there for a second on uh, the, the famous uh, languages in Tecumel. And it occurs to me when you were saying, uh, you know, some uh, players are good at social interactions, but they, they play their characters in a different direction, which is great. One thing that I found in my most recent uh, original D&D campaign was leaning really hard into the, the languages issue of every different uh, creature type, every different intelligent creature type has its own language, and the player characters have a very limited, fairly limited number of slots, is that in different circumstances, 
different players had to get pushed to the fore because they're the only person that knows language whatever. So even if someone wasn't normally the spokesperson, if, if one person knows the language of bugbears and they run into some bugbears, all of a sudden that player is actually forced to take the spotlight for a little bit and they have to be the spokesperson because nobody else can do it. How much does that, like, like do, the, do the players in your group generally just like all know the same languages? Does that kind of interaction happen a lot for you? Uh, yes, it actually does. Um, it's funny. Languages are, are a big part of the of the game. Uh, I mean, the creator of TechML was by professional linguist, so naturally, languages are very important. And he spent a lot of his early life in in uh, Southeast Asia uh, and learned to speak various languages. And so, it, it was a significant thing to him. Um, so, in the campaign, um, many of the characters begin play with certain languages, like in in D and D. Um, and others don't. And so as a result, when they go places, the characters who can speak the languages, just as you described, come, you know, become more important. The difference is that over the course of time, they um, have learned languages. Like they have, um, they've hired people to teach them. You know, they'll get tutors to in instruct them in them, or they'll hire local interpreters or guides or things of that sort to do that. But but the overall point that you that you're making about how certain characters will come to the fore because of their unique skills is very much the case. And that's one of the things that's fascinating over the course of seven years is that, you know, characters start to have uh, a niche where, you know, this is, this is a job for, you know, Znayashi, this is a job for Kelano or whoever. Um, these various characters who have areas of interest and specialty and competence uh, and they will, they will become, you know, more important as a result of that, which is really, is, it's an enjoyable thing to watch, again, as a referee, because you never, um, it's not focused on a single character, right? Like, it really is an ensemble. And the other thing, too, that I should add that's contributed to this is that many of the players, actually almost all of them, have at least one, if not a couple of other characters whom they play from time to time. Um, Precisely because it's been going on for so long, they've acquired entourages of, you know, uh, they have protégés or hangers-on of various sorts that are with them. And, you know, if one character is interested, well, to give an example, I mean, relatively um, early on when the characters went to a new area, um, one of the characters was interested in doing exploration. He wanted to go off and into the wilds and see what was going on. It didn't make sense for certain of the characters to do that with him. They weren't interested, and they just they didn't go. So what happened is the player characters who who made sense for it to go, they left. The others, the players, they picked up new characters. They had other people whom they would play, and so we split the group, the campaign. Like there was one group that was doing one thing, and then when they weren't doing, when they were busy with something, you'd go back to the other group and play that. And so as a result, now there are a lot of characters floating around. And you have people that you can rely upon. Some of them are lower, almost all of them are lower level characters. And they're different, right? They're different characters from who they normally play. And that's why even if someone were to die, a character were to die, it's not a problem. You can just pick up someone and, and keep playing because they're already established. And so you were saying, Paul, earlier about how it's, even though it's the same world, it didn't feel like it was the same campaign anymore because there was no character continuity. But in this case, we've already established these other characters. 
So even if they're minor, you know, they're not in the main credit sequence, if you will, if it were a television yeah. program, they're still recurring guest stars and then they get elevated to main cast if somebody yeah. should die. And that's the way it goes. I mean, that's that's something I certainly experienced in my own campaign, but more so, I think, possibly because it sounds like maybe my campaign was a little deadlier. So we saw just, just turnover of characters dying, and so players creating new characters. Uh, not that they had other ones in the wings, which is fascinating. I actually love that idea. Um, but uh, I, I always delighted in that. I delight in those moments when the players... Um, you know, are, are forced into a situation. I guess the, the example I have is there was a case where I had some of the same players I had had before, but they were all playing new characters and they were looking for a map to a location and they, they talked to an NPC and they paid a fee and they said, yes, we know that uh, some explorers once explored there and they made these maps. And I literally handed back to the guy, the player, the maps that that player had created as a different character. So, yep, here you go. And he just absolutely rolled his eyes at me of like, oh, no, I know that these maps are awful. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a great, that's an, that's an absolutely terrific story. That's, I, I like the way, no, but I mean, truly, I, I think that's terrific the way that there's that continuity through like an artifact, an object in the campaign. Yeah. And I think that's terrific. And I was going to say, for what it's worth, I ran about a year after I started this game, I started a second Empire of the Park, the different that one only lasted for two years precisely okay. for the reason it was very combat heavy. And by the end of the game, only one of the original characters was still around. And everyone else had replaced their characters multiple times, so there was barely a thread of continuity anymore. And it just didn't feel like the same campaign anymore. It felt very different. Um, and so that sort of spoiled some of the fun. So I, I don't know I, I'm not going to make, I don't have a strong opinion on the matter, but I do think it's important if there be that thread of continuity, which is why I am really grateful at this point that there are those additional characters because yeah. the things that, that the characters are doing now are pretty dangerous. And I do, I won't say I live in fear because I don't, but I mean, I do wonder, I think, okay, this is it. They're going to kill themselves. And they've come so close so many times. <laughs> I mean, um, one, yeah. one of the, one of the player characters has, actually died twice um and it was incorporated into the sort of evolving um mystery of what they were investigating and i was very happy with the way that worked but it was purely um it was not intended it was not intended that that was the case the player that was steven's uh character had done something that was foolish he he cast it he cast uh, magic while wearing armor metal armor which you shouldn't do because it has a and he killed himself um, and then the players, rather than leave him, they decide, okay, we got to find a way to bring him back from the dead. And they did, but it was in this foreign city state in this unknown land and they got him brought back. But when he came back, there was something off. It wasn't quite right because he had oh, been nice. seemingly infused with the power of a foreign deity. Uh, and so he started behaving a little differently and he had certain knowledge and abilities they didn't previously have and that was very useful to me in presenting things about this other culture and they got to learn more about it because these people treated him like oh well he's he's the vessel of a god now um so this is perfect we've been waiting for this moment you're going to lead us into war against our enemies right uh and it never happened but the point is that's what was was being pushed again as i say i keep pushing these things and the players they, they just don't listen 
They, they, they have their own ideas. <laughs> so, so uh, Stephen is currently in the chat defending his choice, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna respect and, and let him continue to defend his choice on that. But this brings up a really interesting issue about how much um, resurrection magic is available and how much it affects a long-running campaign. And so, one of our top patrons, Joshua, um, has made the point multiple times that. You know, may, may, we, we think of old school D&D as being super brutal and having a high body count. But on the other hand, um, you know, resurrection raised dead spells have always been uh, in, in the core rule book from, from day one. And maybe it was intended that that was fairly easy to access. I personally am someone that is kind of slightly aggravated about the world building aspect about having resurrection magic apparently like a, a commonly functioning part of the world, but Joshua makes a pretty darn good argument that maybe that is what part of the game is intended to be. And that does keep continuity of characters on. So in, in your, in EPT, how it, or at least the way that you run it, how, how easily accessible is resurrection magic and how does that affect the campaign world? Yeah, that's actually a really good point. And I, I largely agree with the idea that, um, I mean, original D D had you know raised dead in it or in reincarnation. So I mean, these were things that were intended to be used. They weren't put there. Oh, you know, you shouldn't use them. But as as for the campaign, um, I um, like you, Dan. I I worry about the world building implications like a great deal. And Tecamel, more so than a lot of settings, is very um, uh, tight in the way that it presents its uh, its setting. And so I do worry about that. But D&D, original D&D, Empire of the Pell Throne includes rules for raising the dead. Like there are spells and magics of various sorts that will allow you to do that. So I was of the opinion, okay, you have to be able to, uh, to allow that. But what I have done in any occasion where it's occurred is I've made sure that I try to contextualize it in, in the larger, in the setting. So I tend to restrict it there in, in the Empire of the Pell Throne, Solyanu, uh, there are uh, 20 gods that are worshipped, and they all have their particular spheres, and there are two gods of death, um, one of whom is Sarku, who is the god that the House of Worms worships, uh, and he's all about the undead, actually, is about the, the preservation of uh, the intellect after death, because at Solyani, they believe that there's a kind of a reincarnation that happens. Uh, the sort of animating principle when you die gets recycled into another person. But your ego, your you, your memory, everything that makes you distinct, that just dissolves away. But the worshippers of the, of the god Sarku, this one god of death, they, he, they're interested in preserving that forever. But the only way you do that is by becoming undead. Um, so that's one thing. But then there's another god, uh, Belkanu, uh, who is also a god of death and uh, has a different perspective on things and the undead are not part of his perspective, his point of view. Um, all this is a long way to say that I do allow these things, but it's always done in a, um, uh, from, I pay attention to the society and, you know, what, who, where, who would be interested in bringing people back from the dead? What would they want uh, from allowing this magic to be used? And what are the consequences of that? So it's not just, you know, go on down to the cler local cleric, he raises you up, you give him his gold, and that's it. There's always uh, something attached to it. So that's what happened when when Stephen's character, Ifo died uh, the first time. Uh, he 
was expected. He was brought back, but there was an expectation from these people, the Noxai, who were a, a foreign culture, that he was going to fulfill some uh, important tasks for them, including leading them in battle against their enemies. Uh, and so for a long time, the characters were entangled in the politics of the city-state where these particular people were from, and it led to lots of very, very interesting things for months. I mean, it was it, it sort of was an engine for the campaign, and I, I was very happy with the way it turned out. And it was totally unintentional. It was not something that I expected to happen. I was, in fact, quite shocked at the time that uh, the character had died because... It had been so long since I'd even really given much thought to that. Oh no, what are we going to do? Um, and so there it was, and it was it worked out really well, and I'm I'm very pleased with the way that turned out. It's 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 one again. It's another one of many many moments that are quite memorable over the course of seven years. If I could editorialize just for a second, I like the fact that you know old school D and D of the the DM having the authority to twist spells in ways that aren't actually written in the book, particularly for the top level spells, right? So Raise Dead, Reincarnation, they're at the top level for original D&D, along with like Death Spell and Control Weather and, uh, you know, um, uh, the God, Summon Stalker, what am I thinking of? Uh, invisible Stalker spell, stuff like that, in, where you're summoning an extra dimensional um, entity. And I, I, I personally really like uh, the DMs having keeping some amount of mystery behind those top level spells and having the authority to twist them for their campaign in ways that keep magic mysterious and silly, unexpected, and dangerous. Um, and so I, 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 I love hearing that how what a great effect that that had on your campaign, James, to be able to do that. Yeah, really I mean, the off. thing is, as I, as I was saying earlier about uh, Techmel being a sort of secret science fiction setting, um, the magic um, is, uh, is is poorly understood by most people in the setting, and it's sort of held by the, these temples who have this knowledge that they've they've marshaled for for untold centuries, and so as a consequence, you know, even people who are fairly uh, intelligent and well-read and educated don't know all these details. So it, the setting itself um, helps that a great deal. It's very, very easy to do that, and it just feels appropriate. It, feel, it feels um, like something that should be in the setting, that kind of mystery and secrecy about the way uh, those most powerful magics work. So I mean, in some settings, I guess it would be harder, perhaps, to do that. It depends on how you present things. But I, I've tried very hard from the beginning to sort of emphasize that. And that's, in Tecumel, that is the kind of setting it is. It's filled with mysteries and secrets. And I think that's what keeps things going, too, because the characters are always on the lookout to try to find a new thing that they didn't know before. And every time they peel back another layer of the onion, there's more underneath it. And it just sort of keeps it going for a long time. That's great. That's great. So we okay. So I've got my eye on the time here, and I have so many things I want to I want to ask James, and I, mm -hmm. now I know I'm not going to get them in uh, all at once. Um, uh, should we? Um, you you have you have a player in your in your game that's pretty well known as a map maker. Can I say his name on on the I, show? I don't. I don't think he would mind. No. <laughs> okay. So we so James sent me a, a city map. Um, that one of his players, who's Dyson Logos, uh, made, and we have it on screen currently. And the I can't, we can't show it on screen 
in its full glory because it's the single biggest map I've ever had to deal with. It's uh, 13,000 by 20,000 pixels. And so the detail that Dyson put this into, into this map is unreal. And I, I, there's a zoom in, like the, the next slide. Okay, so this still isn't fully zoomed in, right? This is, <laughs> this is still zoomed out by like about a half. Um, so the amount of detail that uh, Dyson put into this map where the House of Worms clan house and everything else is located is just jaw-dropping. Um, and uh, this hasn't been published anywhere. Is that right, James? Um, well, okay. That particular version, I think you can get It's on uh, Dyson's uh, website. Okay. So if you go to okay. his blog, okay, it's there. And uh, you, you can find it. Uh, an earlier version of that appeared in an issue of my Tacomel zine, The Excellent Traveling Volume. It is, that is the city of Linyaro, which is a, um, a colony of Solyanu that's in a far-off place. Most of the campaign over the last five-plus years has been taking place in this um, region that's far from the main campaign setting, um, where the characters, you know, the Empire set up this out. And there's the city of Linyaro, which there was no map of it because it it's just a little point on a map. And we just decided, okay, well, what does it look like? And we are very, very fortunate. I am very, very fortunate in that I have a master cartographer as one of my players. Dyson's been playing since the beginning. And I knew of him, but I never knew him well prior to this. Um, and so he's always sketching out maps. And so we just started talking about what does this place look like? And he started putting it down and people started adding details and bit by bit it grew and it turned into this thing. And then a big event happened in the game where there were these demons that were summoned that burned large portions of the uh, city down. So the characters who are part of the colonial administration, Steven's character, Ifo is the governor of the colony. Um, they just say, well, here's an opportunity to make the city look the way we want it to look. And so they move things around. They put up new structures. Again, they get engaged in politics with various clans and temples and, and power groups and factions and decided, well, who wants to be close to the governor's palace? Who wants to get shunted into the new suburbs that we're building and all of these things? And it was great. And so that version that you're showing there is, I think, the most recent version because there's two parts, I don't know if you can see, in the sort of the north top of it that are kind of sparse, that are not very open. Uh, and those are new re areas that have been built over the course of the several years that the characters have been running this colony. Um, and so, mm -hmm. you know, they added extra walls. They, and so that's what they've been doing. Like, this is the domain game, if you will, except it is... Um, a single city that they've been put in charge of that's part of a, this, this far off uh, colony. And uh, it is amazing to me how much time we've spent in sessions. Again, this is to give you a good example. I mean, by when I say social, where they're doing this, they're negotiating with, with different factions and seeing what they can extract from them, what sort of favors they can get in order to put them in one place or another. I mean, you know, we joked, it said, who else? has a campaign where you spend, you know, several sessions engaged in urban planning. But they did, and it was fun. And it was very, very enjoyable, right? It's it's the same way, you know, another character, like we spent an entire session about um, matchmaking. He was looking for a wife. And so he was going around to different clans and seeing who had the best, what, who, who could offer the best to him. And uh, it was disturbingly fun. It was really, really enjoyable. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm curious, That's James, awesome. um, and may, maybe um, maybe th this uh, this will segue into the question that John Miller has asked recently. Dan, if you want to put that uh, on screen, Definitely. I'm just kind of curious, like how much of the content of your campaign has come up uh, organically or stuff that you're inventing on the fly versus what you planned ahead versus what is actual written material that you started with? Maybe we can unwind that and start from the beginning and ask John Miller's question, which is, what's the best way to get started as a DM when setting up a TechML campaign? What books or games do you recommend? Um, okay, well, that's, that's, an, that's, that's a very easy question. Um, if you're just starting with TechML, Empire of the Petal Throne is all you need. You just start with that. It's very basic and simple. Um, the amount of setting material there is very small by comparison to other stuff. I think it's it's a lot less off-putting compared to the later material, which in charity, I would say, is is written in a, a kind of a dry academic style. It's very off-putting, I think, to people. And honestly, I don't even, I don't use all. It's just, it's it's impossible to use all of it. I forget details all the time. You know, you have a book that's hundred, a couple hundred pages long, just filled in tiny, you know, eight-point type. Like, I, I, so I, I would recommend Empire of the Petal Throne would be the, would be the place to start. Um, and then if you like that and are interested in more, there's another book called the TechML Sourcebook. And that probably tells you more than you would ever want to know. But, but it's the kind of thing, I would say, you read it, you get a bit of the flavor and... Um, Add little details as you will, right? Like, don't worry about knowing every single detail because no one's going to care. Um, it's all about the overall sort of um, as a flavor of the thing. Make sure that it, it so it doesn't feel like your your typical uh, vanilla fantasy thing. But it's t that having been said, and this this goes to the other question you were asking, um, there are still a lot of empty spaces in tech. Like the, certain things we know a great deal about, other things we don't know almost anything about at all. For example, this city, Linyaro, uh, this colony is in a place called the Southern Continent. It has no other name because it's just far away and we, we, people don't know what's there. And so in the course of the campaign, the better part of the campaign I've been running, all the details are largely made up by myself um, because it's a blank section of the map. Like there's just, there's nothing there. We know that there's this culture called the Noxi. They're different than everyone else. They worship different gods. They have different customs, but what those are, we don't know. So I made them up and that's being done. That's a constant evolution uh, over the course of play. And that's the part that's really been enjoyable. I mean, that I, I like coming up with new things in a, a larger context that already has been uh, laid down, but it, ultimately it's it's still you know, my ideas. So that's that's new. And if someone else were going to be playing and doing a similar thing, I would recommend you do the exact same thing. You make up those details as you need them, and don't worry about um, it's. I think what happens is because Tecamel is so well, what we have is so well presented. People think that they're going to break it or ruin it or somehow they're not capable of doing it themselves. But honestly, it, it's not like that at all. It's no different than any other well-established setting. There are plenty of gaps for you to add your own individual creativity. And you just, and, and if you don't like some detail, change it. Like, I, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't do that. It is your game after all. And every version of TechML that's ever existed, in the introduction, it says that thing. It says, you know, I'm presenting my version of TechML, now create yours. 
That's great. That's great. I feel, you know, it's funny when you say that, uh, James, because I feel that the places where, you know, D&D adventures or campaigns have left gaps, or I might say lacuna, are the things that my mind goes to, like, my, my mind is like, that's a problem I got to solve. But it's specifically the thing that keeps me coming back to, like, find out more about it. Um, and, and myself, like, I, for someone who's got a little bit of a mathematical bent, I actually have to uh, fight with my instinct to make to form completely formalize the thing and close it off and remember to to keep leaving these oh and maybe there's something over there and there's a tunnel down here and I don't know where it goes right now and there's a lost level to keep the interest ongoing particularly if you want to have like an, an open-ended ongoing campaign uh, do, do you agree with that I mean do you you try to like leave things that you still don't know in the parts that you make yourself Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, definitely. I, um, I've i said sometimes, and it is not an original thought to me, and I think it's true of a lot of people who create, in the, the course of playing and going through all of this, um, I'm learning about the setting as much as the players are, right? It's an opportunity for me to you know, their their characters are literally exploring the setting, but by their going off into those little blank spaces on the map, it's an opportunity for me to figure out what's there um, because we don't know. So I had to come up with some answers for that. And um, it's been enjoyable. I mean, it, that's one of the things I find really great about this. And I, and I think, you know, if I were to try to uh, sum up, I guess, you know, how the campaign has survived for as long as it has and continue to maintain interest, it's the fact that there are so many uh, things left unexplored, unanswered. There's still lots of mysteries and secrets and places to go, people to meet, you know, things to discover. And, you know, I made this onion reference earlier, you know, about peeling back the layers. And it's just every time the characters do something and they think they've got a handle on it, they find out there's more that they don't actually know. And they may not be prepared at that time to deal with it, but they'll remember it and they come back to it or they don't. And then it just becomes another one of those dangling threads. But they still could come back. I mean, I've, I've been amazed how often something that was presented years in the past will suddenly come up again. And they're like, hey, yeah, you remember that time when we did this or we met that person? I bet you that's related to this. And it's like, actually, that's that's exactly right. Or, well, it is now. <laughs> uh, right? That's, that's another thing, too. Right? I... I I like to say I'm kind of a lazy referee when it comes down to it, and often the best ideas are the ones I steal from my players. Yeah, that's that. I I, I consider that to be a master DM play myself. That's good. Well, that's thank good you. I, I'm I'm glad I'm glad <laughs> you like it. We have about five minutes remaining here, so I'm going to ask uh, for final thoughts here. Dan, you use a question burning uh, the tip of your tongue here. You want to get out? Well, yeah. I okay. One other thing I wanted to ask James, of course. So, so prolific, and James puts out so much stuff, and he's got the Grognardia blog that he updates almost every day, sometimes multiple times a day, which is which is just a huge, a huge treasure for all of us in the old school community. He's got the excellent traveling volume, which is his EPT zine that comes out once in a while. Um, you have a podcast now that was actually news to me. So you've got the Hall of Blue Illumination podcast now. That's also EPT based, right? Yes, yes, it's a fantastic. 
there's links to all this stuff in the description on YouTube. And my, my understanding is that you've been working for a while on a project called Secrets of Sha'arthen. And we have, I guess we have the draft cover there at the end. How is, what is, what is that going to be briefly? Um, that is going to be, um, it's more or less my Tecamel. It's sort of a, um, I like Tecamel a great deal, obviously, and I, that campaign is continuing and I'm enjoying it greatly, but, um, I've wanted to try my hand at my own sort of secret science fiction setting. And I have different interests and tastes that I don't fit in Tecamel that I'd like to try out. So that's more or less what this is. It's, it's another fantasy setting that I'm much more slowly than I had hoped. I mean, I think I talked about it almost a year ago with you, and I'd hoped it was be closer to being something I could present to people. But it's coming along, and um, it's percolating in the background. But it's 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 my take on that kind of genre, that sort of secret science fiction fantasy setting. Great, great. I, I you I, you I, you are in good company with people that take a long time to get their get their product out. <laughs> so we couldn't sympathize more, right, Paul? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. But let me leave the, 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 the if if you James have anything else that you want to talk about about your your long running campaign or projects, feel free to tell us. Maybe I've overlooked something that I that I should have asked about. I think I I'll say one other thing that I didn't uh, that I didn't mention, and that's that uh, I think you know the two most important things that I have learned is that you know have a good group of people to play with that you can rely upon, uh, and that are committed to actually playing and then beyond that uh meet regularly like do it constant like we meet more or less weekly keep it up every session is not going to be gold you should not expect that every session is going to be filled with uh deep and meaningful and memorable things but on the other hand every single one of them adds a kind of depth and texture to the setting that you never know later on someone will remember like, as I said, these details, and it'll make those sessions that weren't so interesting seem more significant over time. You're building something up, you know, bit by bit. It's just, um, you know, a little, you're just a little pebble here. And before you know it, you have this giant mound and just keep, keep at it. Really don't, don't give up uh, too soon. Hmm. That's great advice. I love that. Yeah. 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 That's fantastic. Uh, viewers, uh, as, as Dan mentioned, uh, links to uh, all, all of these things, uh, the, the podcast and, uh, and uh, Grognardia and uh, various other uh, works that James has worked on should be available in the description of the uh, video here on YouTube. Uh, so please check that out. Uh, if you have any uh, further questions about Tecumel or, uh, or, or any, any of the myriad of, of topics that uh, James has been on to talk about, whether it's uh, secret sci-fi settings or D&D uh, &D in general, please post them. Uh, obviously, we love having James on. He's uh, record-breaking three appearances on Wandering DMs. Um, so so leave, us, leave us your comments and questions, and surely uh, we will uh, prepare ourselves for visit number four. Uh, slowly leveling up, but James is at the head of our of our party. Um, so if you're new to the show, remember that you can like, follow, and subscribe to us, The Wandering DMs. We are on YouTube and Twitch and Twitter and Facebook and GitHub and TikTok, and we do have the handle Wandering DMs on all of those sites. So look for us there, follow, and you'll get updates on upcoming shows and upcoming guests like James. If you prefer to listen to our show in audio-only podcast format, you can do so. Those podcasts are available at our website at wanderingdams.com. 
Uh, they're also very available through other third-party podcast carriers, such as iTunes and Spotify and Google Podcasts and a, a large number of others, I'm sure. Uh, if you're listening to this show on one of those sites and it has the capability to do so, please rate and review our show there. That helps other users of that carrier find us, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, we really do. And a uh, big thanks to our patrons, of course, who support the show and are involved with the chat and add to our programs all the time. If you're in a place where you'd like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash You'll see our different tiers. You can get discounts on our merch, access to a private Discord server, beh monthly behind-the-scenes stuff, and uh, after-party chat that we hold every Sunday right after this show. So we'll be there in about uh, 10 minutes uh, to continue the conversation live with our patrons. And if you're not a patron, uh, throw a dollar in and uh, join our, uh, our session on Sundays that we enjoy so much. Uh, you're going to be there today, Paul, right? Yep. I certainly will. Looking forward to it. Great, awesome, awesome. Uh, please, yeah, please, uh, please get stuff. come and join us. I think it's a it's a big it's a big benefit and definitely worth worth your while. A lot of a lot of interesting conversations and some of our show topics come out of those chats. So uh, please do join us. That is correct. Um, and other shows uh, coming up this week. Uh, we have uh, my uh, uh, game. I play games from the Elder Times. Late night is going to be Tuesday at eleven, and I'm still playing. I'm still hacking away at the Dungeon Hack game. I'm hoping I get through it this week. And then I'll probably, and then we probably the week after that, we'll probably switch that show to Thursday nights, actually. But this week, uh, still on Tuesday. Next week, we'll hope you'll be back because uh, we've been planning to have one of the topics that came from one of our patrons, actually, is talk about Western, uh, Wild West role playing games, actually. Um, and of course, D&D &D was the first. And today with James, we were talking about EPT, which was the second. And the third game right after that was Boot Hill, which was a Wild West game. And uh, I know that James has played that. And in fact, the Wikipedia article on Boot Hill quotes James extensively for his review that he did of Boot Hill at one point. So we'll we'll probably be referencing James again next week when we when we talk Wild West role playing games. Actually, so tune in then. But James, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a treasure whenever we get to spend time with you, and we really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. That's the best. Uh, so yeah, don't forget, we are live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So please join us again next week for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then. Bye, everyone.